Well, what is up, Substance? Make some noise wherever you are at. You made it. You made it to church. And I just want to welcome everybody in downtown, West Side, Monterey, Mexico. We love you all. And all of the churches joining us from all over the place, if we haven't met yet, I'm Pastor Peter Haas. And uh, man, we're going to have some fun today. I, I know that there's a lot of you who are newer here today. We've had so many people who've given their lives to Christ gotten baptized over the last couple weeks, and of course, I, I just, you know, it's been on my heart to just share a few things about our church that makes it a little bit different, and I, I'm sure some of you are already like, clearly this is different, you know what I'm saying, like your, your church is named a, a really weird name, Substance, right? Well, I, ultimately, I, I just, you know, I, I, I've been in full-time vocational ministry for almost 30 years now, it's actually crazy to think about it. Most of those 30 years I've spent as a lead pastor of a church, and then uh, what, what's, what's, to make it even more interesting, I, I've, many of you guys know that I've helped lead an organization called The Ark, a church planning organization that's given me the ability to, to help launch over 1,000 churches. And I've, one of the things that I've learned as we've popped the hood on churches is I've gotten to kind of evaluate the engine that drives the, the church. Really, what like church health has been kind of an obsession for me, and, and one of the things that I've learned is there's a lot of churches that look the same on the outside, but once you pop the hood, you'll see the engine is very, very, very different, okay? And, and, and so today, what I wanna do is I, I wanna talk about that a little bit. I wanna talk about church health, and even more than that, I wanna give you a, a, kind of a unique devotion on heaven. I wanna teach you some theology on heaven, because believe it or not, your theology of heaven will dramatically affect the way that you practice church, okay? And I realize that sounds kind of unique, but over the years, I've heard a lot of people tell me, hey, experience is the best teacher, but actually, I would totally disagree with that. Experience is not the best teacher. How many of you know the school of hard knocks? Yes, although it is a very effective teacher, there's a better teacher, and it's called the school of wisdom. And I, uh, how many of you know the tuition for the School of Hard Knocks is really, really high nowadays? The interest rates on student loans for that school, it's just, mm, it's not working. So I, I wanna give you the School of Wisdom. In fact, John Maxwell puts it this way, experience is not the best teacher, rather evaluated experience is the best teacher. And I think we all know that to be true. It's been true for thousands of years, which is why the author of Proverbs said, I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. Applying your heart and evaluating experience takes a lot more effort than I think a lot of people realize. Most people, I would actually, in fact, over the years, I've done a lot of pastoral counseling, and I, over the years, 90% of people already knew what their solution was. They just didn't apply their heart enough to actually bear out the process of change. In fact, I would argue that most of you already know what God's calling you to do, even though you're like, what is his will? You know his will. Most people already know his will. They just don't want to, they just don't want to embrace it and actually go through the process of applying their heart to what they've seen. And, and, and so what I want to do is I want to, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about how we can shift, how we can think differently about our lives, how we can think differently about church. And so that you guys can have more joy. That's ultimately what I want to do. And I'm, I'm telling you, by the end of today, I think you're going to have more joy in your heart. And uh, it's kind of a story to set it up. I remember right before my wife and I planted Substance, 
I remember my mom had been giving money to uh, the Jesus Film Project. Does anybody remember the old Jesus film? It was like a movie on Jesus. Uh, this was before the Passion of the Christ. Campus Crusade for Christ would take this movie and they'd go around to all these places where people were uh, illiterate, therefore they're not gonna be able to read a Bible, but they can show a movie in a lot of these villages in very remote places. And they were, uh, so the crusade organization was doing the Jesus Film Project in Bihar, India, and uh, which by the way is a very tough place to evangelize. There's a lot of, uh, the, the Malto tribes in Bihar uh, have been traditionally very anti-Christian. They were very resistant to the church in, in that season. And, and so whenever the crusade uh, film project would show the Jesus film, uh, a lot of times the missionaries there would get threatened. There was a lot of persecution. A lot of local Christians would have to call off the film showings just because the threat of violence was so high. Well, uh, right around that time, there was a 16-year-old girl who tragically died in one of these Malto tribes. And of course, you know, whenever somebody dies young, it's usually kind of extra tragic. People, you know, really get rocked and of course, this particular village was being rocked by this, this tragic death. But that evening, her parents were prepping to bury her, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she sat up, came back to life, scared the heck out of everyone. Everyone started running like, oh my gosh, she's not dead after all. And here's the craziest part. After she came back to life, she, this is what she told her parents and everybody that came in to see her. She said, the God of the Jesus film team sent me back for seven days and he told me to tell as many people as possible that he is real. Well, okay, the, at this point, everyone was a little shocked. They were a little bewildered. They're like, we don't believe in Jesus. We believe in a totally different religion, but uh, okay, you have seven days. Where's the Jesus people at? You know what I mean? Like, and so they were looking for the people that like, showed the Jesus film and they're telling everybody what had happened and everybody's like, okay, uh, I think they're in that village down the road. And so they, they immediately found the missionaries who showed the Jesus film and they begged them. I mean, this girl begged them, please come back to our village, show the film. I will plead with my people to reconsider their stance on Jesus. And, uh, and get this, for seven days in a row in 1998, they showed the film and then she told her story about how the God of the Jesus film sent her back to tell it's real. And, uh, and, and that's what they did, seven days in a row. The craziest part of the story is the girl who had died and come back to life, she seemed perfectly fine. She had no health problems overtly, but just as she said, seven days later, she suddenly collapsed and died again, and that was it. And she was gone, right? And so, like, ever since that happened back in 1998, the crusade team had all this massive uh, progress. They not only were able to share Christ, lead hundreds to Christ, but they ended up planting several churches, and that was the turning point for that region when it came to Christianity. Uh, I mean, come on, is that not crazy? Just, I'm just saying, is that not crazy, okay? You can go and interview these people still. That's what's crazy about it. And how, how many of you guys know, life is short. Life is strange. Our existence is so bizarre. And, and, and I, I think there, there are moments in life where I believe that God will allow us to have experiences that force us to sort out our theological baggage. In fact, some of you, you're in church today because you're in the middle of a crisis that's forcing you to sort out your theological baggage, your views of heaven and hell. 
That's why David prayed a very, very radical prayer, and it's a prayer that I want to encourage you to pray this week, okay? And it's this, Psalm 39.4, show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. Now, that's a dangerous prayer to pray. Now, most people, you know, if you really think about it, I think sometimes we read prayers like this in the Bible and we're like, we just kind of let it flow right over us. We forget how bizarre this is. David is literally praying, let me know how I die. Most people are trying to not think about death. And he's like, no, I want the juicy details. Let me know, does my, you know, will my body explode? Will I, you know what I'm saying? Will, I, will it be fire? Will it be car accident? Will it be cancer? Will it be heart disease? He's literally praying that God will reveal it and let him know the number of his days. Now, most of us would say, well, that's kind of creepy. That's kind of morbid. Why would I pray that? That's like not good. Like, no, actually, it is good. And here's why. In fact, I would actually say if, if praying to figure out the end of your life, what that is, if that feels odd or intimidating to you, it's probably a sign that you have bad theology lurking around in your heart. What do I mean? Well, I've noticed over the years that when people are trying to live in denial of their mortality, and Christians do this too, okay, so don't think this is just a non-Christian thing. There's Christians and non-Christians who are in denial of their mortality will usually, it, they, they'll, they'll find this weird to even talk about this kind of stuff because of one of two reasons. Number one, again, people do not want to know, people do not want to think about death if they have not sorted out their theology, period, of who is God, is Jesus real, is, is there no other name under which salvation, is heaven and hell a real reality or not? Or is it all just a philosophy, okay? If you haven't sorted that out, you're gonna have anxiety about death, understandably so, right? But even Christians, let's say you have sorted that out, you do believe in Jesus, you know you're going to heaven, but here's the deal. If you haven't wrapped your heart around a theology of heaven, you're still going to not wanna die, which, which ultimately, I know that's, this is gonna sound funny, but I look forward to it. I actually look forward to it. I, I, like, I'm not afraid to die. I'm actually excited. Why? Because the Bible teaches that there's gonna be cities in heaven, there's gonna be houses in heaven, there's gonna be vocations in heaven, there's gonna be schools and universities in heaven, and how do I know this? Well, uh, it's because, uh, well, think about it. Uh, there's actually a lot that the Bible reveals about heaven. Revelation chapter six, it says that people are still asking questions in heaven. If you read that chapter slowly, people are constantly asking God questions which means there's learning in heaven. It means there's still growing in heaven, okay? There will be things that, that we're gonna instantly know just by having a new resurrection body, which has twice the capacity of our current bodies, but I, there's gonna be libraries, universities, there's gonna be laboratories, there's gonna be people inventing things. In fact, listen, if there's the Lamb's Book of Life, that means that there's gonna be books, and if there's gonna be books, guess what? There's gonna be libraries. If there's gonna be libraries, that there's gonna be learning institutions. I mean, come on. Actually, the Bible reveals way more about heaven than most people realize. I, I, I love, many of you guys know, I love reading books and collecting books on heaven because I, I just, you know, I, there's something about just stimulating our minds about the, the age to come. There's one of my favorite books and this is literally one of my faves out of like 80 heaven books, okay? I get like stacks. I have stacks and stacks of books at my house. And this is probably one of my faves uh, by Richard Sigmund. He, he actually died in a terrible traffic accident, was dead for over eight hours, 
And two nurses were wheeling his body to the morgue after eight hours of death when he suddenly overheard them talking about his death. And one of them said, he definitely needs to be embalmed soon. And then suddenly he sat up and he says, I ain't dead yet. (laughs) And the two nurses so freaked out, one of them shrieked at the top of her lungs. The other one collapsed on the ground in Peter Pants. Okay, which is very detailed in his book. And, uh, and then one of the nurses, the one that shrieked, started yelling for the doctor, he's not dead. And the doctor was running, oh, no, 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 no. He's definitely dead. I pronounced him dead. Come on. Guess what? Sometimes God pronounces things differently. So he sits up and he immediately began telling them what had happened. And during those eight hours, he claims that God gave him an extended tour of heaven. And he, of course, while he was there, he saw multiple universities filled with endless books of knowledge. Uh, in fact, there was a place that was actually called the Library of God's Knowledge. God wanted us to be able to engage a few more. He wanted us to get to know him a little bit more, and so he has this Library of God's Knowledge where God wrote down a few of his thoughts on science and all this stuff. And, and Richard Sigmund said, I talked to a man who was there for over 2,000 years, and the man said to him, I'm only on page two of God's knowledge after being here for 2,000 years straight. Okay, so now I I love that idea because I love learning, but uh, Richard Sigmund wrote that there was a university-like building also called the Rewards Department building, and it was a part of a much larger building where God would write an entire book about each of us on how he specifically planned on rewarding every human being uh, in heaven, okay? So there's a book being written in, if you're a Christian, there's a book written in the rewards department, and and Sigmund said that, that friends and family and just maybe fans of you who are cheering you on in heaven right now, believe it or not, you have fans in heaven, okay? You're, you have fangirls in heaven probably. Um, so, and, and you got friends and family who are just watching you, who are just interested in your life, right? Have the biography, kind of like a sports star or an athlete or a celebrity. There are people in heaven that will go to the rewards department that participate on a welcoming committee for you. And what they do is they meet in this room, according to Richard Sigmund, and they take out this book that God has written on your rewards. They read them before you arrive and they plan your welcoming parties, they plan surprise gifts, they're even working on your house, okay? So they read this book, they find out what is the exact type of house that God would like to give Peter the most, and then it's like they strategize on what would just blow your mind when you get there, right? They wanna serve you. In other words, people are still doing ministry, it's just a different type of ministry. Now, here's the deal, okay? I'm not trying to say this is scripture, But I can promise you the scriptural heaven, whatever that is, is gonna be real and physical just like now, and that is exactly why the Apostle Paul said in in Colossians 3, 2 through 3, he says, set your minds on things above. In other words, obsess about it. Think about it. Dwell on those scriptures that talk about heaven. Set your mind on it, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When you got baptized, again, it was a funeral followed by a birthday party, right? That was what that's what baptism is, is it's a Christ resurrects on inside of you and lives your life through you. And so Paul says, you gotta do these two things. Remind yourself of heaven and remind yourself that Christ is living your life now for you. It's no longer you and no longer your agenda. Christ, trust me, Christ knows how to live your life better than you know how to live your life. And some of you, that's a revelation you're just now having. 
right? But it requires daily surrender, daily thinking about things above, right? Okay, we live in a world that constantly talks about YOLO. You only live once, right? And uh, it's, it was one of the new words that was invented in the last decade. And, and uh, you know, but the idea really kind of embodies this hoard as many experiences as possible and gather as much money as you possibly can so you can have as many exp- uh, experiences as possible. Why? Because this life is all there is. You only have one life. Well, guess what? As a Christian, we don't believe that at all. We don't believe in YOLO, we believe in uh, YOLT. You only live twice, right? I mean, Jesus actually said, though you live, or though you die, yet shall you live, okay? John eleven twenty five. 25, okay? So we actually believe in an age to come. We believe that, oh, this is just, we're just getting started. In fact, this whole life is nothing but a test, and if we could just embrace it, Embrace actually the sacrifice of loving other people and embrace the the death of Christ in our lives so that we can serve other people, then then we're gonna experience true life. You see, but if we don't have that theology really living in us, then God will allow us to experience what we call wake-up calls. He'll allow us to experience the fragility of life, not because he wants to, not because he's mean, but because if that's what it takes to help you process the crazy, amazing opportunity, then so be it. It's actually a blessing in your life, okay? Uh, another one of my favorite books on heaven that I, uh, I've read over the last couple of years, probably one of my favorite books in the last three years, I would say, is this book, Imagine Heaven by John Burke. Uh, he researched over a thousand near-death experiences, and uh, similar to the one I just told you about the, the Jesus film story, Uh, just really amazing book. Uh, In the book, he tells the story of a man named Jack who was dying of a lung disease. Actually, he had a lot of issues. Um, His lungs were so weak, he needed surgery for something else, but the doctors wouldn't do surgery on him because his lungs were too weak. And so they were waiting waiting for his lungs to heal up. So he's in the hospital waiting for his lungs to heal up so that he can get surgery for something else. And so he's waiting to have surgery, but the doctors won't tell him the day. Well, on, after a really particularly awful day, Jack claimed that an angel suddenly appeared in his hospital room. His spirit was peeled away from his body, like he saw, he literally had an out-of-body experience, and he claimed that this angel took him to a very specific place in the hospital, that he floated down through the floors and floated through walls into a recovery room. And the reason why it was interesting to near-death researchers is because when when people would have an out-of-body experience that they could verify after the fact, um, it would lead more credence to the concept of, of life outside of, of the body, okay? So they, they were actually trying to find people who had near-death experiences that had verifiable experiences. Like if he could describe the rooms that he floated through accurately, then you could actually prove that it's possible for uh, the soul to exist outside the body. And so again, all these scientific researchers were looking for stories like Jack, and of course I did an entire sermon on just stories like these, but what was interesting is that he, he claimed that the, the angel took him to this surgical recovery room and said, this is what the angel told him, this coming Friday, the doctors will decide that you are ready for surgery, and you're gonna go into surgery, and then after that surgery, you will be placed in this recovery room, and you will be placed in this particular bed. It was the first bed from the right, just inside the door from the hallway, okay, very specific. And then the angel said, however, 
you will not wake up from this surgery. In fact, you will actually die in this bed, in this recovery room after your surgery. But I'm telling you this, as he was hearing this, he was like, why am I not disturbed by this advice? Like he, he, but the presence of this angel was so peaceful, he was like, he was actually excited, like, woo, I get to die. But he was, he was, he was like, this is so weird. Like, what is, what is happening? But then the angel said, however, God wants to give you a few more final moments with your family, and so use them wisely before this Friday, and don't fear death. That was the message of this angel. And so, of course, you know, Jack kind of appears in his body again and had this experience and was like, what was that? Did that really happen? Like, and of course, Jack had happened to recently adopt his nephew. Uh, his, his nephew had gone through some terrible stuff, and so he ended up adopting his nephew as his own son. And, and the moment he started thinking about his nephew, he started weeping. He was like, how is my nephew gonna process this? I mean, I'm his new dad. How, I mean, after all he's gone through and then his new dad is gonna die? And he, he just started crying thinking about it, and all of a sudden he heard the voice of God say, Jack, why are you crying? Like, I thought you would be pleased to come with me. And he, he's like, well, yes, I am. In fact, actually, I wanna go be with you more than ever, God, but I'm just worried about how my son might interpret my death. Like, I would just love if I could have a little more time on earth to help him just overcome some of his setbacks and some of his struggles. And then all of a sudden, he sensed the Holy Spirit say, well, Jack, because you're asking on behalf of someone else, you're, because you are thinking of others and not thinking about, about yourself, I will grant you what you are asking. I will extend your life. You will live until you see your nephew become a man. But you will still go through surgery exactly as the angel has described it. Well, sure enough, all of a sudden, the doctors came into his room on Friday and said, we're gonna take you into surgery today. And he was thinking, oh, on Friday, it's exactly like the Lord said. He was like, it's gonna happen today. And so he was just thinking, am I gonna wake up in that one particular bed on the far corner on the inside of the door? And so he was like literally thinking about this as he's going into surgery. Sure enough, he goes through surgery and he woke up in that exact bed and started freaking out, telling all of the nurses about this angelic encounter. And of course, all the nurses are thinking, crazy. You know, this is the anesthesia talking. There's no way that he had this experience. But actually, he came out of it thinking, more than ever, God is real. There's no way that I could have had all these details. And, um, and this whole experience really happened. And of course, he became a part of this body of research on near-death experiences that had verifiable details. Now, believe it or not, there are literally over 900 scholarly articles about near-death experiences that have verifiable, confirmable details of some sort of conscious existence outside the body, okay? So I just, those of you who are a little skeptical, I, I wanna encourage you, dive into some of this stuff. There's a lot of really, really interesting research coming out on this topic. And maybe, maybe you're here and you're like, I don't even know if I'm open to any of this, Pastor Peter. All of this just seems too far-fetched. I get it, okay? I understand it's okay to be skeptical, but here's a stat that I guarantee you all of you can agree with, and it's this. One out of one people are dying nowadays. I know, I know, right? It's like an epidemic. You have like a 100% chance of biting the dust. 
kind of scary. So at the very least, in light of that, you owe it to yourself to sort out this whole thing about God and to just think through the time that you have. And that's why at Substance, we're always trying to talk about things like this. And we're also trying to talk about legacy. Those of us who are believers, we're trying to say, how can we live in such a way that makes sense in light of eternity? And how can we do church in such a way that makes sense in light of eternity? I think the more you meditate on eternity, the better your theology of heaven, actually the better your theology of church and the better your theology of life, of generosity, of all these things. I remember a while back there was an older couple who started coming to Substance and, they, and I was talking with them and they said, you know, Pastor, for years we had heard about all the people giving their lives to Christ at Substance. We had heard that it was a good church, but to be honest, we were a little bit scared because we heard that it was filled with a lot of young people and that kind of intimidated us. Um, just all the young people. Uh, part of it was because we thought, well, if we go there, you know, will they have any place for old fogies like us? I mean, would we even be able to add value in a church like that? And, um, and, and of course, I was like, well, of course you guys could add value. Why would you even think that way? And they're like, well, you know, we just, we showed up. We felt so out of style. I felt like I needed to buy a new wardrobe. And I'm like, I'm like, bro, no, you just be you, you be you. People love that. In fact, God made you as you are, okay? So don't, it's just, and he goes, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But he goes, you wanna know what it really was the, 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 the thing that changed everything for us? Is we started attending all these small groups. And we'd go to small group after small group after small group, and, and we kept meeting all these young couples who literally knew almost no Bible whatsoever and we would just pour into them, and, and then next thing you know, dozens of couples are always begging us to mentor them. I think we do dinner more than ever in our lives, and we now feel more mission than ever before in our lives. Now, I, I walked away from that conversation, just, it, it kinda stuck with me, and it was actually a very profound conversation because I think a lot of, a lot of Christians tend to think that when a church is really, really hyped up about reaching lost people, unchurched people. There's, you know, like in our church, we're constantly saying, hey, it's about reaching the lost. It's about one lost sheep. Heaven has a disproportionate response to the one lost sheep over the 99 righteous singing his praise. That's what Luke 15 teaches. So we're always talking about reaching the lost and how you'll never understand why we do what we do unless you regularly invite your unchurched neighbor. Now, the reason why we do that is because evangelism obviously matters to God. It says that over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus said, I did not come for, I came for the sick, okay? Not, not for Christians who already have the truths and know how to feed themselves. I, I'm coming for the lost who don't even know how to feed themselves, the people that don't even get a, a, a vote in our church, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and so a lot of people, though, they think that if, if a church is focused on unchurched people, that it automatically devalues the people who are already coming, the found, which isn't true at all, okay? A lot of people think that if you're a church that values evangelism, that you automatically devalue discipleship. In fact, actually, I believe the greatest way to elevate the value of discipleship is to be great at evangelism. In fact, ultimately, I actually believe it's almost impossible to appreciate biblical discipleship unless a church is constantly brimming over with young people. 
And let me make the case to you here's, and explain why that is true, not just from a, a, a biblical theological standpoint, but from a statistical standpoint, okay? I actually believe that, you know, Philemon 1.6 actually teaches that we learn by sharing, not by consuming, okay? So you, you actually, even you sitting in this church service, this is not the greatest form of discipleship. This is actually a very inferior form. This is the starter form. This is just me getting you excited to get to small groups because ultimately when you start sharing your faith with people in your small groups or sharing your faith with your coworkers, all of a sudden that's where you actually grow the most. That's where you learn the most. That's where you, you become discipled the most, okay? Learners, that's what disciples means. And, and so get this, okay, for example, Research has shown for decades that there are two groups that are most receptive to the gospel. If, as they've interviewed people over the years, over the last several decades, when did you give your life to Christ? The vast majority of Christians on earth all gave their lives to Christ in one of two windows. The first window is they gave their lives to Christ when they were between the ages of four and 14. And so it's called the four to 14 window that a huge number of Christians, most people who give their lives to Christ did so before age 14. Think about that. What does that say about evangelism, that churches that are good at kids' ministry are great at evangelism? The second window where people gave their lives to Christ the most was 18 to 21. Now, it's not that people don't give their lives to Christ outside of those two windows, they do. It's just that generally, people who gave their lives to Christ outside of those two age windows generally did so because of some sort of major crisis in their life. In other words, they had the death of a loved one or they had a massive identity crisis that they got injured when they wanted to be a pro athlete or they got fired from a job or they didn't get accepted into a program or they went through some sort of significant life-altering change that forced them to reevaluate even who they are, okay? It was crisis, it was trauma. So for one reason or another though, be it psychology, adolescent development, those two age windows tend to be the golden windows of all evangelism. And so in order to be effective at evangelism, churches have to be great at kids ministry, four to 14, I don't know, maybe it's after 14, every, you know how it is when you were a teenager, you're like, you knew better than everyone, you know. My parents are idiots, they don't even know how to dress in style, and then, and then you become a little more open and then in the 18 to 21, and then, you know what I'm saying? Like, for whatever reason, those two windows of time tend to be the golden windows of evangelism. Now, when churches target those two windows, let's say you're a church that does great uh, kids ministry, or, or like another method for the 18 to 21, they always say let the 18 to 21 year olds define the Sunday morning culture of your church, and then great commission, you'll naturally lead significant larger numbers of, of people to Christ, which will automatically create a giant demand for discipleship, so dis you elevate the value of discipleship by being great at evangelism, okay? So they, they found that when churches do these two things, there will always be an upward trend in the following four areas, okay? And this is just a, a research approach to church, okay? Churches that focus on the four to 14 window and the 18 to 21 year old window, they allow 18 to 21 year olds to define their church culture, They'll always experience, number one, more conversion growth. Um, number two, there's gonna be more baby growth. This is kind of obvious because, you know, if you think 18 to 21 year olds, they give their lives to Christ, what are they gonna look for next? A spouse, and what happens when you find your spouse? Babies happen, if you don't understand how babies happen, 
Talk to one of our campus pastors after the service. They'd be loved, they would love to tell you about that. Um, baby growth happens, which is like we, we say, you can grow your church the conversion way or you can grow it the Catholic way, <laughs> as the old joke says. Okay, so if you didn't get that, don't worry about it. Um, the third thing, third thing that'll happen when churches focus on those two windows is they have consistent income growth. Why? Because when you're constantly, when your church is constantly filled with young people, uh, they're always trending upward in their income bracket. You'll see this true, it's just basic demography, what I'm actually explaining to you. Um, consistent, so you, they'll generally be in churches that are good at this, there will always be an upward increase in finances. And the fourth thing is that, that seasoned Christians will get addicted to aprons over bibs. Do you, you know what I mean by that, aprons? A bib is what you wore as a baby when your parents played airplane with you. Here it comes, a little bit of applesauce. Open the barn door. Whatever it is you do with your kids. I don't know, I'm just making this up. But I, you get the idea, you have a bib because you spit it out and then you, you know, everything that was fed. You got a good sermon, but then you yacked it up by a Friday, right? And you didn't apply it the next week. Right, you, had, you, that, you were like, that was a really good message, and then you didn't apply it. You know what I'm saying, you didn't digest it, so you wear a bib, because you spit it out over yourself. So at some point, what, there's a lot of people that literally come to church because they think it's about receiving. Okay, now that's great if you're a baby Christian. You, you, again, it's a consumer approach to church, but ultimately, God wants you to wear an apron, why? Because Jesus said there's more blessing in giving than there is in receiving. Again, a generous person will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself get refreshed. Or he said, hey, the way you find your life is by losing your life. These things are so counterintuitive because they're the exact opposite of consumerism. It's actually sacrifice. It, he, really, Jesus was saying death to self is the greatest thing ever. But unfortunately, you'll never have that if you're coming to church with a bib on instead of an apron. Well, how, how do we, a, a lot of times, a lot of Christians will go into, they'll, they'll basically get into arrested development because if you think about it this way, let me use a hospital analogy. Let's say church is a hospital. And, and Jesus said, hey, I didn't come for the, uh, you know, the, the well, I, I came for the sick, right? Church is meant to be a hospital for the hurting. Well, if, if, you, don't, if you have a, an emergency room and nobody is ever coming into it, what will happen is you'll stand around with the other people in the emergency room and you'll start, why do we even use this gurney? Should we, why do we wear these scrubs? Should we change the way we do the scrubs? You, you start debating about things in the emergency room, right? Okay, so I, you'll see this in churches. Churches will have what they call like worship debates about any church that you go to where they're still debating about what kind of worship they should do. That's usually because the ER is not very busy. That's the only reason why you'd even have the time to have that conversation, why? Because in a church where people are dying on the table every single week, you're not worried about how the blood is all over the floor, you're just giving CPR. You're thinking about one thing, saving that person. You know what I'm saying? You don't even have the time to get into theological debates and into worship format debates. All the things that a lot of Christians kind of get into and they just, you know, politics. You don't even have the time for politics because you're just like, Hello, this person's dying, CPR, you know what I'm saying? Like, your, your entire sense of priority shifts. Well, again, uh, it's not about consumerism. If, if you're a non-busy ER, what you'll do is you'll convert your ER into old country buffet with, a, with like a you know, first aid kit, you know what I'm saying? 
And, and unfortunately, that's kind of what a lot of churches have, have turned into. It's an old country buffet. It's just, I want to ingest information as though that is somehow discipleship, not realizing, no, that's the, the, the best way to elevate biblical discipleship is by getting evangelism, getting so acclimated to a busy emergency room that you just don't have the, the time to do anything else but ingest information to help other people. It's always about serving, always about teaching, always about doing. I, I remember back in, in, in 2014, um, our, our church was portable in four locations. We were doing seven services in four portable locations. We had our operations center in Roseville, but I, I remember when I first started casting vision about our Northtown campus, I'm like, I wanna build a campus with a giant kid's playland. And of course, I would find, I, like to me, I, it always bugged me that McDonald's had a kid's playland just to sell more French fries, and I kept thinking, our product is infinitely greater than French fries. It's your eternal salvation, and yet churches can't even get a kid's playland? I mean, like, for, good, for goodness sakes, why, why is McDonald's better at this than the church? Is it, like, in my mind, it just felt like this really kind of weird injustice. Like, I want a kid's playland. And I remember after kind of casting vision for it, uh, there were a couple of young couples that came up to me, and they're like, Pastor, that just feels so kind of extravagant. Like, really? Is this really what we need? And I'm like, trust me, you don't have any kids right now, but in a couple of years, you're going to thank me. And then five years later, 500 babies later, man, you guys have babies. It's just like, like machine gunning babies. And then it's just like... All those same couples that came up to me, sorry, that was a weird, weird metaphor. I didn't take my ADHD meds today. I, you, like all those same couples came up to me like, thank you, pastor, for thinking about it, right? Because I'm always trying to think a couple steps ahead, what will our church need? And, and, and if I could be even fully honest, the kids ministry ideas that really are on my heart um, are gonna make our current Northtown Kids Playland look stupid. If you go to our Mexico campus, oh my gosh. What we just built there, uh, your money built a, a building there. We have a trampoline park in our kids' ministry. What? If you go on a mission trip there with your kids, your kids are never gonna come home. You're just gonna lose them. And they'll be missionaries to Mexico. It's gonna be amazing, it's gonna be amazing. No, but for real, the reason why we did that is because I, I really did, I, I'm like, I'm like, let's do this. Let's make it so awesome. And guess what? A lot of our greatest leaders at that campus have come because the kids invited their neighbor kid. The neighbor kid came, loved it so much, they started coming back. And after like seven weeks, the parents were starting to get worried that it was a cult. And they came and they gave their lives to Christ. And now they're some of our greatest leaders. That's how most of the salvations occur at that campus. And I, I thought, you know, I, I love that. It's the same thing with college ages. Uh, the reason why we're always trying to update our, our multimedia and our music is because I always want that 18 to 21 year old, I, I wanna make sure that, that, they, that we're communicating in a way that, that makes sense to them, that we're using their language and, 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 and constantly updating ourselves culturally so that we can keep our discipleship pipeline wide open. Because ultimately church, here's where I wanna go, okay? The day is gonna come when our great, 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 great grandkids are pastoring this thing. And I started, I, I even started writing out a hundred year vision. The Lord spoke to me, write out a hundred year vision. And it was way tougher than I ever would have imagined because actually everybody I know and love won't even be around. So how do you do that? What, 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 like there's gonna come a day where we're all gonna be on retirement in heaven 
And don't worry, we're gonna do, we're still gonna gather in heaven, okay? We're gonna do the 2023 substance reunion service, okay? So don't worry, a thousand years, just put it on your calendar. Actually, we'll do it every thousand years, we'll do it. And uh, actually, you know it's funny, in the Richard Sigmund book on heaven, he actually said that churches actually do that in heaven, that he saw churches from like a thousand years ago. They would still get together and watch all the revival films, you know, that they, the video, that the 3D uh, film of what they did on earth. And that sometimes what they would do is that they would actually be worshiping with a lot of the congregations that they started on earth, that they would still be worshiping, okay? I, I thought about that with our historic Wesley campus, right? Nine generations have already worshiped in our downtown campus. Like, how cool would that be? But I, I'm just saying, a thousand years from now, we're gonna get together and we're gonna, you'll all come over to my disco mansion and it's gonna be awesome, right? My wife loves eagles and so there's gonna be all these creepy eagles all over the place. It's gonna be awesome. We're gonna have a party and we're gonna cheer on our great, 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 great grandkids that your kids are gonna be leading this place, right? And I want you to be able to look me in the eye at that moment and I want you to, I, I, I want you to be able to look me in the eye and say, thank you, Pastor Peter, for talking me out of my comfort zone. Thank you, Pastor Peter, for talking me out of my bib and making me put on that apron as uncomfortable as it was. Thank you for giving me a heart for God's house. Thank you for talking me into generosity. Thank you for recruiting me into kids ministry because some of you are gonna tell me this because as a result, God ended up putting me in charge of this really crazy planet that is filled with waterfalls because you, you forced me to volunteer in the kids ministry and as a part of the rewards of me serving in the fours and fives, he gave me this crazy planet filled with water uh, with waterfalls and all these like dog horses that run around and I'm minecrafting the heck out of it right now. Would you wanna come? and ride some dog horses and I'd be like, come on, reunion, let's do this. Some of you are like, I'm a little disturbed by how your mind fixed, but I'm just telling you, God is even crazier than this. You haven't seen anything yet. You haven't understood anything yet. I'm just telling you, eternity is gonna be far greater than you could possibly imagine and I'm just saying, that's all the more reason why We've got to think about how we're living now. What am I, is what I'm doing making sense in light of eternity? And trust me, God can take any of us. Maybe you're here and you're like, oh, but I've squandered it so much. How can I even, listen, it doesn't matter, okay? Think, think about that girl that had seven days. She came back to life that the, in India. She only had seven days to store up treasure in heaven. I'm just telling you, most of you have way more than that. So don't worry about you being behind or don't worry about you have made, made mistakes in the past. Listen, God has given you opportunities right now, right here in the midst of your imperfect life. And here's the deal. I, I think there's some of you who um, you're here and you're like, you're new to this whole God thing and you're like, I don't even know if I fully believe all of this, but, but Pastor Peter, I'm open. Listen, if that's you, I, I, all I'm saying, take a step today. Just draw near to God in your heart. I'm telling you, he is going to lead you. He is gonna guide you. He is gonna speak to you about how you can maximize the time that you have right here, right now. So would you just bow your heads, close your eyes with me. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you have given us your word to illuminate us about the age to come. You've given us your word to awaken us 
to new investment opportunities in your kingdom. And I pray that every last one of us would lean in and experience your joy, that we would set our hearts on things above, our minds on things above, that we would fully understand the joyful things that you are wanting to bless us with. But God, right here and right now, I pray that you'd give us the character that could sustain the weight of those future blessings. Lord, help us to make the changes right here and right now. And if that's you, if you're agreeing with what I'm praying, then why don't you just pray this after me? Say this, say, dear Jesus, forgive me, renew me, and lead me starting today and for the rest of my life. And if you agree with that prayer, just between you and Jesus, say, I mean that. I mean that. He sees your heart. He sees your life. We love you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. With all that said, we're going to have our campus pastors come on up and tell us where we're going to go next. I love you guys.